Mark chapter 12, verse number 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there's one God and there's none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst or dared ask him any question. Father, would you help us tonight as we look to this passage? May I rightly divide it. Be a help to your people, Lord. Speak to us in an unusual way tonight. Apply it to our hearts as only you can. And may Jesus be lifted up. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. This is the third attempt in this chapter alone by the Sadducees and the Pharisees to catch Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. The first one we saw was verses 13 through 17. They questioned him regarding money. Taxes, to be specific. Then verses 18 through 27, they questioned him regarding marriage. But now in verses 28 through 34, they're going to question him not about money, not about marriage, but about Moses. About Moses. Now, these tactics were predicted a millennium earlier in the Psalms. Psalm 2.2 says this, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed. So this was not something that came as a surprise to Jesus. The one thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreed on, other than the fact that they hated Jesus, was the value of the Torah. Now, now just to make sure, everybody understands the Torah is the first five books of the the Old Testament, the ones that Moses penned, Matthew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed on about everything else, but they both revered the Torah. And so now they've come together, and they're going to seek to bring Jesus at odds with the most revered personality in Judaism, even more so than Abraham, and that is Moses. Little did they know In this attempt to bring Jesus at odds with Moses, this wasn't going to work. And here's why. Think about it. They didn't understand. It was Jesus that crafted Moses in the womb. It was Jesus that covered him from Pharaoh's gaze. It was Jesus that called to him from the burning bush. It was Jesus that commissioned him to lead Israel out. It was Jesus that communicated to him the law that they claimed to uphold. Jesus knew Moses because Jesus made Moses, and furthermore, he owned Moses. 
So not a whole lot of point in trying to put him at odds with Moses. For their last attempt, they select one of the Pharisees, a scribe. Now let's talk about who the scribes were. The scribes were a specialized group. They could be Pharisees, they could be Sadducees. This one happened to be a Pharisee. And what they would do is they, these, these boys that were in synagogue, 13 years old, they start watching these boys and they start selecting the best of the best. And from the age of 13 on, they begin training them in their scribal duties. Now what's interesting is you think college is a long time. You go to college for four years to get a bachelor's, about two more years to get a master's, and then who knows how long you work on your dissertation to get your doctorate. But if you were going to be a scribe, you went to school at 13, and you got to start your job at 30. That's a lot of college. 30. Now, all of them, the ones that maybe weren't as weren't as uh, wonderful. Uh, They did things like they were notaries and they drew up public documents like deeds and bills of sale and divorce decrees and things like that. that. That's what they did. And all of them copied the law. All of them copied the Old Testament. All of them did that. But the, the real specialists, the ones that were exceptional, they would become doctors of the law and family lawyers, and they inherited pompous titles and were held in higher regard even than most priests. All scribes, by virtue of their training, were experts in the Torah. By the way, Matthew 22 tells us they were also called lawyers. I mean, these guys were the, the best of the best. So the adversaries of Jesus selected one of their brightest to approach Jesus with the latest wave of duplicity. This last attack that they're going to try, they're going to put him at odds with Moses. But this guy that they chose, they they overlooked one critical factor. This scribe, though initially an adversary of Jesus, and we see that in Matthew, He had this terrible flaw when it came to being a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He had a terrible flaw. He was fair-minded. Kind of like politicians. Fair-minded politicians virtually don't exist anymore. I'm sorry to say fair-minded people are becoming more and more of an extinct situation. He was fair-minded. But Jesus had a message ready for him. And so that's what we're talking about tonight in keeping with our alliteration. A message for the fair-minded. A message for the fair-minded. So what is Jesus' message to him and by extension to us? Number one, rightly applied scripture changes hearts. Rightly applied scripture changes hearts hearts. Verse number 28, and one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now to get more to to work off of here, hold your place here and go to Matthew 22. 
Matthew 22, the same account, Matthew's perspective on it. Matthew 22, verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, that's how we know he was a Pharisee, then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying. So what was the initial posture of this scribe? Was he friend or foe? When he went into this thing, he went in as a foe. He went in as an adversary. Well, what changed? Jesus, the living word, rightly applied his written word. And this scribe, this fair-minded scribe, is watching all of this. He's watching them as they come to Jesus in the matter of money and how he handles that, and how they come to Jesus in the matter of marriage and how he handles that. And now, as he's watched this, this fair-minded man is saying, man, I'm going to tell you, this guy's been right all along. This guy is handling the scriptures perfectly. And so what happens is rightly applied scripture begins to change his heart. What Paul tell us in Romans? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Hold your place in Mark still. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. What do we take from these ten verses in 1 Corinthians? too, that what God uses to change hearts is not man's personality, not man's dynamic persona, not some kind of kitschy gimmick that we use. No, God blesses the Holy Spirit applying his word to people's lives. Now, I'm not against having things that draw people in. I'm not against, you know, having trunk or treats and, and, and vacation Bible school and other things that bring people in. But fundamentally, the only thing that's going to change people's hearts is rightly applied scripture. That's the only thing that can do it. Paul, as brilliant as Paul was, if he didn't have the power to change hearts, we don't either. What do people need? What does this world need? What does America need? Not a majority of Republicans or a majority of Democrats or a new way of thinking politically. No, this world and this country is in desperate need of the word of God. That's what changes hearts. I got news for you. If you can win senators to Christ, their party stops mattering. 
Six Republicans voted for this abomination of a bill that just came through. Six of them. Shame on them. What do they need? They need the Lord Jesus. They need the Lord Jesus. President Trump has announced his intention to run again. Different people have different views about that. I can tell you right now, whether, whether he runs, whether he gets the primary, whether he, Donald Trump cannot save this country. Ron DeSantis can't do it. And it's pretty evident that Joe Biden can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. Well, I don't have Jesus here physically. What do I have? I have his word. And that's what God blesses. While personality and approach can be helpful, it's only the word that can change hearts. And this scribe's heart was changed toward Jesus as he watched the word handle the word. That's what changed him. He didn't need to see a miracle. He didn't need to see Jesus raise somebody from the dead. All he did was listen. He observed. Hey, Christian, people are observing us too. What do they need to see and hear from us? Rightly applying scripture. By the way, just scripture. The world doesn't need our opinions. It doesn't need our traditions. It doesn't need the way we've always wanted it. No, the world needs the word of God. No more, no less. That's the first thing, that, the first message that Jesus had for this fair-minded man. Rightly applied scripture will change your heart. Number two, now this is going to sound really, really woke, but it's no less true. You ready? Brace yourself. Everything comes back to love. Everything comes back to love. Not to the exclusion of holiness, but it all comes back to love. Look at verse 29. Which is the first commandment of all? What's the greatest commandment, Lord? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt what? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt what? Love thy neighbor as thyself. There's none other commandment greater than these. Jesus begins by quoting the Shema. And the reason it's called the Shema is because the first, the first word in it is the word for here, which is Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Lechein, Adonai Hat. Um, that's all I know in Hebrew, so don't be impressed. Um, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. But then Jesus adds a second commandment to fill in the rest. It's Leviticus nineteen eighteen: Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So Jesus answers his question by quoting, essentially, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. Now, the Jews... And by Jews, I mean the Jewish leadership over the course of their existence as a nation. Here's what they did. They took ten simple commandments. Now, I didn't say easy. They're not easy to keep, but they are pretty simple. Thou shalt not kill. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's pretty simple. They took six, six, ten simple commandments. And you know what they did? 
they condensed them to 613. You ever done that? That's like my college career. I condensed a four-year degree into 10 years. That's how long it took me. If I'd have been academically honest, I should have gotten a doctorate. But I didn't. I goofed around, and now I only have a bachelor's to show for it. He says, is that really a big deal? It is when your wife has a master's, and you feel like less of a man because of it. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, and listen, that's not completely... That's not completely out of bounds because if you count up the number of commands in the Old Testament, you come out with 613. But God never intended it to be complicated. And since then, the Jewish leaders have expanded it into verbal and written tradition called the, the Talmud that goes far beyond anything God ever intended. Far beyond. Jesus does the exact opposite. He takes 10 simple commandments and condenses them not to 613, but to two. To two. Aren't you glad God simplifies things for us? He's he's too profound for us to ever really understand him. Aren't you glad he puts the cookies on that low shelf for us so we can understand? Here's, Here's the simple commands. Two of them. You ready? Love God with all your heart. What's that? That's your identity. That's the source of all thoughts, words, and actions. With all your soul, that's your emotions. With all your mind, that's your will, intentions, and purposes. And, and, and your strength, that's your physical energy and actions and potential. Love God with all of you. Love God with everything you are. That's, that's number one. And by the way, that covers commandments one through four. You want to obey commandments one through four, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Then the second one, love others as yourself. That takes care of commandments 5 through 10. He just condenses it down. 1 John 4.20 is interesting. It says this, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? I'm allowed to say this because I'm one of them. There's a lot of my fundamentalist brethren out there that claim to love God, but they have a real hard time loving people. I've been there. I've been that guy. This encompasses all the expectation of God. The key word here, now I understand this isn't a Hebrew word, but what word does Jesus use when he says love God and love your neighbor? He uses agape. That's a decision. It has nothing to do with emotions. It has nothing to do with how you feel about them. I have decided to extend my unconditional love to this person because I should to God, and to others. So when I say this encompasses all the expectation of God, would you agree with me that if we loved God and love others, that pretty much covers it? With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yeah, that pretty much covers it. There can be no service to God without love. There's no such thing as loveless holiness. There's no such thing. Because you can't separate love from your service to God because you can't separate love from God. What did John say? 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God 
and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Doesn't sound to me like we can separate it, does it? God is love. Never lose sight of the importance of love. I hope this doesn't come off the way I fear it will, but I need to figure out a way to say it. I have asked God to give us opportunities to minister to people that nobody else wants. The down and outers. Has God answered that prayer? Yeah. I don't know if you realize this or not, but in the last six months or so, there's been a bit of an uptick in our our opportunities to help people that are maybe lower economically than we are. Not in value, but, you know, they're having a harder time than we are. And I'll, I'll be candid with you. Sometimes it's a hassle. Sometimes, sometimes it can get a little messy. I mean, when you've got to sit down with somebody and just be blunt with them and say, listen, I love you and I'm glad you're here, but the way you're living is just dead wrong. It can get messy. But we ask God for that. So what do we do? We love them. What do we do when somebody smells bad? We love them. What do we do when they can be a distraction? We love them. There should never be a question. I've run into people, and it's not directed at our church specifically, but, but like, I, think, I, know, I know a family that's, that's got a, a young man with special needs. And, and they, said, uh, they said, man, we'd love to come to your church, but we're worried, we're worried our son will be a distraction. Bring him! May we live in such a way that it's never even a thought in somebody's mind that they're welcome here. Now, if they come in here on purpose to disrupt things, yeah, we got ways of handling that. But I'm talking about, I don't care who walks through those doors. I don't care what they look like. I don't care how they identify or what their transition or anything else. If somebody walks through those doors to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility and a privilege to love them. Because that's why Jesus died. Because he loves them. And yeah, sometimes I have to mutter to myself, Jesus died for this guy. I'm pretty sure I heard my wife mutter that after an argument we had. Jesus died for this guy. It all comes back to love. You can't separate God from love. It's not a choice, the holiness of God or the love of God. It's the same God. It'd be like me separating my wife, her intelligence from her beauty. It's all her. I don't have to separate it. I love her. And if we love God, love's a part of it. Man, I think of the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. And it's tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars, and has borne his patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. These are guys, I mean, they are doctrinally sound. They are on the ball. They got good visitation. They got an excellent outreach program. They're really good. I mean, they're solid right down the line. And yet Jesus says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. What? That's left thy first love. 
you're leaving out the most important part of it. It's a delicate tightrope. It's a balancing act. I am an independent fundamental Baptist. I know that's a pariah in some people's minds, but I am. I'm a Baptist because I believe in the Baptist distinctives. I don't think I'm better than anybody else, but I believe in the Baptist distinctives. I believe they're scriptural. If I didn't, I'd be something else. I'm independent. I'm not part of any convention or association. I don't hate those that are. I'm just not. And I believe in the fundamentals of the faith, those things that need to be true in order for salvation to work. So by definition, I'm an independent, fundamental Baptist, just the way it is. But let me tell you why we're having the, um, the struggles that we're having. I don't like the term as a movement, but, but as a, a, a persuasion. Because we had an entire generation of IFBers. They were all holiness and no love. And we've got to guard against that, y'all. Yes, maintain our position, our biblical position, but have a biblical disposition. Love people. And you'll find out as you do that not everything we thought was doctrine is. Beloved, whether or not you hold a microphone when you sing is not doctrine. I've read the Bible through many times. I have yet to see the word microphone. I cannot find anything in precept or principle about holding a microphone. And yet I've known Baptists that have gotten all up in arms because a singer dared to hold a microphone when they sang. That's ridiculous. And it is completely devoid of love. Completely devoid. Everything comes back to love. Now, does that mean that we throw a doctrine out the window? God forbid. No. But we apply our doctrine lovingly. Does that mean we throw holiness out the window? No. But we live holy lives in love. In your marriage, do you throw everything out just for the sake of love? No. It coexists with every other good part of your marriage. And the same is true of our Christianity. So rightly applied scripture changes hearts. Number two, everything comes back to love. Here's the third message he had for this fair-minded man. Received truth becomes expanded truth. Received truth becomes expanded truth. So this man asked, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So Jesus gives him the truth. What does it do? He receives it. And then what does the truth do in his life? It expands. How do I know? Look at verse 32. And the scribe said unto him, well, I read this differently every time I read this verse. Is he saying, well done? Or is he saying like Southerners? Well, I don't know. Either works. Well, you ever had somebody say, say something to you that was kind of earth-moving, and you went, all you could say is, well. That's what he said. Well. Master, thou hast said the truth. 
What do we see there in that first clause? I receive what you just said. I agree. He received the truth that Jesus gave him. Thou said the truth, for there is one God, and there's none other but he. Now watch it expand. Watch him go further than Jesus gave him. Watch this. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, watch this, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus didn't say that. But what happened? He accepted, he received that truth, and it started to expand. He started to put the, remember, nobody knows the Old Testament better than he does, other than Jesus. And so now all of a sudden, verses about sacrifice start coming to his mind, and the word starts to expand in his thinking. Right? What's he thinking about? I think he's thinking about Psalm 51, verse number 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So Jesus gives him, Thou shalt love God and love of your neighbor, and all of a sudden it all comes together for him. That's what that means. But listen, the other, the converse is true as well. Rejected truth becomes waning truth. You don't receive the truth God gives you, he'll take it from you. Remember what he talked about not long ago? Whom hath shall be given. Whom hath not shall be taken away. It's the principle of, of, of received light or responding to light. You respond to what God gives you, he gives you more. But you reject it, he takes it away. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our society. We rejected a real simple truth, a self-evident truth. A building means there's a builder, right? Anybody think this, this building just showed up? A building means a builder. A writing assumes a writer. A machine assumes a designer and a mechanic. Art assumes an artist. Everybody agree with those? Then creation assumes a creator. And we rejected that simple, basic truth. And mankind has been getting dumber ever since. Dumber? But, but, but Andy, the advancements. I mean, you can, if you've got enough money, you can go up into space for 14 minutes now. You can just call up Jeff Bezos and he will shoot you up in the air. It'll be great. The medical advancements. The things they're able to do, they can stop your heart and fix it and then start it again. I don't debate any of that. But that doesn't mean that we're getting smarter. Because you know what else we're doing? If you want to change your gender, go ahead. Men 
can have babies. No, they can't. And they never will be able to. God made man and woman, male and female. That's a simple, self-evident truth that we rejected as a, as a society. And so what's happened? God has said, okay. Rejected truth becomes waning truth. But received truth becomes expanded truth. You receive what I give you. I give you more. And that's exactly what happened with this scribe. It started to come together. It started to come together. How do we know that he was fair-minded? This whole thing is about being fair-minded. Look at verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, this is such a neat word. I love the definition for this word. Okay? The word discreet, it's the only time this, this particular word is used in the New Testament. It means prudent, or listen to this, in a mind-having way. What does that mean? Mind-having. He hadn't lost his mind. He has his mind. A reasonable response. That's what he says. That's what it means when he says, when he saw that he answered discreetly. Here's a man that has not lost his mind. He's in his right mind, and he's reasonable. So what does he mean when he says, thou art not far from the kingdom of God? I think we know this to be true from experience. Fair-minded people respond to the word. But people that don't have fair-minded ways, don't. You ever encountered somebody that wasn't fair-minded? You ever encountered somebody that no matter how much truth you laid on them, they just, they just weren't going to hear it? There's an entire generation of them. Because I believe the Bible is the word of God, they say, I believe in slavery. I'm a racist, I'm a xenophobe, I'm a homophobe. That's not being fair-minded. And there's some people that you can try to witness to, and it is just evident from the get-go, you are not dealing with a fair-minded person. So what do you do? You give them the gospel, you do your best, and then you move on. Jesus told his disciples, you shake the dust off your feet. Because they're not, they're not wanting to receive truth. So so what? What do we take from this? For every irrational, intellectually dishonest person that we encounter, and they're out there, aren't they? And they're frustrating. I've sat in senators' offices with Dan Zacharias, and I have watched him lay out a a very basic, thorough case as to why this legislation is bad. And they just look at him. They're not being fair-minded. You can show statistic after statistic. They are gonna, they're going to vote the way their base wants them to vote, no matter what's right or wrong. 
But for every irrational, intellectually dishonest person that we encounter, somewhere there is a fair-minded person out there just waiting for somebody to effectively articulate the truth of God's Word. They're out there. We just got to find them. But they're out there. 1 Timothy 4.1, we tend to think of this as a negative verse. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Yep, we're there, preacher, we're there. Okay, read the verse, though. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, some. Let me test your Greek knowledge. What does some mean? Some. Not all. The Greek word for all, you know what it means? All. The Greek word for some means some. What does some mean in English? Less than all. Some. So that means that in latter times, some shall not depart from this faith. Some shall not give heed to seducing spirits. Some are still reachable. So here's what we need to commit to do tonight. Here's our marching orders. Here's our so what. By God's grace, be the one right now to commit to doing whatever you got to do to learn how to effectively handle God's word. It may be a refresher course. It may be discipleship. It may be enrolling in an institute. I don't know. But do what you got to do to say, I am going to learn the word of God that I might effectively handle it. And then go look for fair-minded people. Because God's got a message for them. That's our marching orders. Messages for the fair-minded. 